Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. For President's Day, we're taking a contrarian turn to talk about a president who finds himself near the bottom of almost all presidential rankings, Warren Harding. On C-SPAN's 2021 survey, presidential historians ranked him 37 of 44. Historian Ryan Walters argues that while Harding's presidency had its scandals, his accomplishments, including bringing the country back to normalcy after World War I and setting an economic plan that led to the Roaring Twenties, are often overlooked. In his new book, The Jazz Age President, Mr. Walters lays out his case for why President Harding should be reassessed. Ryan Walters, in a new book, The Jazz Age President, coming out this President's Day, you're asking Americans to take a new look at Warren G. Harding. Why? Well, he's one of the most maligned presidents in American history. Um, I call him the most maligned president in American history. And the reason for that is he's finished last in more presidential surveys and rankings than any other president. Um, He and James Buchanan are kind of running neck and neck. Harding's come up a few notches in the recent years, but what's been said about him is really in the realm of myth. There's a lot of myths about Harding and and falsehoods and just untruths and outright lies. Um, And when you look at his true record and what he actually accomplished as the president of the United States, um, it's actually quite impressive. C-SPAN is one of those organizations that has done uh, four presidential surveys and wanted to put the results of uh, of our survey on the screen, where Harding has come in at number 37 of the 44 presidents who were ranked. His highest scores are in areas like public persuasion, uh, relations with Congress, pursuit equal justice for all, uh, international relations, and economic management. Do those track with the story that you tell in your book? Yeah, he actually had a really good uh, record in a lot of those areas. Um, of course, relations with Congress was good because he, the Republicans had large majorities in the House and the Senate. Harding was a Republican. Um, his, his foreign policy was really good because, and he didn't get a lot of credit for that. Um, when you look at the things he did in foreign policy, like calling the Washington Disarmament Conference and formally ending World War One and withdrawing our troops from Germany and the Caribbean, repairing our, our relations with Mexico. Um, he's got a, his economic record. He he began the, the, the process that led to the Roaring Twenties, the greatest decade of economic growth we've ever had. He doesn't get credit for that. Coolidge gets a little bit more credit, but it was Harding that started that process. Why did you, as a historian and biographer, get interested in this task? Why take him on? Well, really, a lot of the, a lot of the when you when you look at the rankings and, and and how people rank presidents, a lot of that comes down to your worldview. It comes down to what you believe, what, you, what are your political views, your philosophical views. Harding's a conservative. Harding's an America first conservative, um, believed in laissez-faire economics and, and a non-interventionist foreign policy. If, if you believe in those things, you're going to like Warren Harding. Um, if you don't, if you like Wilson, if you like the FDR, you're not going to like Harding. I like Harding. I like his viewpoints. And just, just reading little things in grad school, um, the idea for this book, actually, I, I started in grad school. When I when I started the process, I went I went back and actually found my original notes in grad in grad school where I had sketched the book out, and I wanted to dig into the record because a few people have written good things about him, and I, I just wanted to dig a little deeper. Look at look at primary sources. What did he say in his letters? What did he what did he say in his speeches? Uh, what did what did people who knew him say about him? Um, 
is far different than what others have said about him. Harding's papers did not become available till 1964. What's the story of why it took so long for them to become public? And the second question is, did you use them? What'd you find if you did? Well, luckily, there's a couple of historians that went through his letters. And of course, when he died in 1923, uh, his wife, Florence, learned a lot of them. Um, but we have some important ones, particularly a lot of his political letters. And that's what I was interested in mainly, not so much his personal life. This is, this is not a full biography in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I do talk about his background. So I was able to use that book and, and go through his letters. Um, they weren't released in, in 1964. I'm not sure exactly what the, what the problem was with that. But they were eventually released, and that's when people began to look into the letters and say, "Well, wait a minute, this guy was because one of the myths is he's dumb, he wasn't he wasn't a smart man, and that kind of thing." When you read his letters, you don't get that at all. You see somebody who grasped the issues, who was a very good political operative, who understood the game of politics, uh, and played it very very well. In the early pages of your book, you note uh, similarity to Donald Trump. Where do the similarities start and end? Well, uh, in, in their political viewpoints, again, Harding um, was really Trump before Trump in a lot of ways, particularly in how they viewed the world, how they looked at politics. Harding, again, was America first conservative. He was America first foreign policy. He was, uh, didn't want to see any more wars. That was a reason for the Washington Disarmament Conference. Uh, his trade policy and Trump's mirror each other very well. He believed in uh, using tariffs. You know, Trump called himself a tariff man. So their policy viewpoints are very, very close. Of course, liberals and people that don't like Harding say, yeah, they were both womanizers too. And I, I refute some of the myths on Harding's supposed womanizing uh, in the book. Um, as, now, as far as their personality, you know, Trump's pretty combative. Um, uh, he, he, he defends himself, you know, on, when he was on Twitter and on interviews and things. Harding was not like that he didn't have a combative personality. He, had a, he was a very humble man, a very kind man, had a very good relationship with the press because, remember, Harding was a journalist. And so he worked well with the press. He was one of the first ones to have press conferences in his house in Marion, Ohio. He built a little cottage behind the house for the press during the 1920 campaign so they could have a place to sort of rest and, and do their work. And so he had, a much, he had a much better relationship with the press than than. President Trump did. Well, before I leave the personal part of his story, in fact, DNA evidence proved that he had an out-of-wedlock child with Nan Britton. So uh, did that contribute to the downfall, her accusations contribute to the downsliding or downfall of his reputation after he died? Oh, sure. Her book came out, uh, her book was called The President's Daughter. It came out in 1927. And a lot of publishers took a look at it and wouldn't touch it. She actually had to self-publish that book. And she made the, the accusation that her daughter was uh, Harding's uh, child. Well, she made a lot of other outlandish claims that she had gone to the White House a lot. And uh, they spent time together in the White House in a, in a closet off the Oval Office. Uh, I refute that particular aspect of her book by using primary sources from people who, was, who were in the White House, the, the chief usher, the, the head of the Secret Service. Um, the doorkeeper, those guys all said nobody came in there to see Harding at any time. There were no women or wild parties in the White House. That was a, that was a myth and an outright lie. But we do know from DNA that he did uh, have a child with her. He had a, a couple of extra marital affairs early in his life, but uh, not as president. Throughout your book, there are quotations from two people prominently, Alice Roosevelt Longworth and William Allen White. 
who were they and and what were their contributions to the public's view of Warren Harding? Well, William Allen White was a newspaper uh, guy from uh, Kansas, and he was not a Harding fan at all. So I used his memoirs a lot. He wrote a lot of books, wrote a lot of books about Coolidge. He had a very, very dim and negative view of Harding. And, of course, Alice Roosevelt Longworth was uh, Theodore Roosevelt's oldest child, his first daughter. As you recall, he had a, he had a daughter. His, his wife died in, died in childbirth, actually on uh, Valentine's Day uh, in the 1880s. And she was very uh, outspoken. Uh, she knew the Hardings well. Um, in her memoirs, she wrote a lot about him. She actually called Harding a slob at one point in her memoirs. And so she was there in the White House. She knew him well. I mean, she was one of the Republican Roosevelts. But um, she did she did refute some of the myths, though, particularly the myth that uh, Harding's wife, Florence, poisoned him. She kind of bristled with hostility over that one. She, she thought that was pretty ridiculous. What are but the... Yeah, you're, right, you're right. They did contribute to a lot of that because people look at those memoirs and they look at memoirs where people had a very negative view of them, and that sort of carried on for 100 years. Uh, about his death, there were conspiracy theories about what happened to him. How did he die? Well, he was on the West Coast on a westward swing, uh, a voyage of understanding. He actually went to Alaska. Harding was the first president to visit Alaska, uh, uh, nailed in a ceremonial final spike to the Alaskan Railroad, and was coming back down the West Coast, uh, got to Seattle, gave a speech, was having trouble getting through his speech. He was becoming ill. One of his doctors said he had possibly ingested some bad seafood. Maybe it was some sort of a stomach ailment. Uh, he had some other speeches in Portland. They canceled those. The train went on to San Francisco, and they brought in another doctor who was a heart spe specialist, and he said, no, there wasn't a stomach issue. He had a mild heart attack. So they put him in a hotel room in San Francisco so he could rest and recuperate for a couple of days, and he actually had a stroke on August the 2nd. 1923, his wife Florence was sitting reading the newspaper to him, and he died suddenly of a stroke. If Warren Harding were to stand before either of us today, describe what we would see. Harding was a very humble man. He was a very kind man. I think most people would like Warren Harding. Um, the stories I put in the book, um, again, kind, benevolent, generous, um, again, humble. Even when he was president, he didn't like his friends to call him Mr. President or President Harding. He said, you know, my, I'm Warren. Call me Warren. You know, let's go out and play golf or something. Uh, people in town, it, people that worked for him at the Marion Star newspaper, uh, he, 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 they called him Warren or, or sometimes WG or something like that. He had that kind of relationship with people. Uh, one reporter for the New York Times went to um, Marion to kind of look at his background, a guy named Charles Thompson. He didn't have a lot of high opinions on Harding, but he, he started talking to different people in Mary, and he found out Harding was very generous and, and helped people all the time with, who were down on their luck, people having trouble at Christmas. He'd buy Christmas presents for them. And he talked to all these different people, and, and people said, you know, he was just the kindest man I ever knew. Um, and Thompson said, I never found the same story twice. Everybody in Marion had a different story to tell about Harding's just generosity. So he was a he was a humble, small-town America guy. He wasn't a big city. He wasn't an academic or some kind of snobbish guy like that. He was somebody that I think most people would like. Even, even his enemies, people that hated him, um, would concede he was a very kind and decent man. One of the historians who has a different view than you of Warren Harding is, pre is presidential historian Richard Norton Smith. 
uh, who we've worked with a lot at C-SPAN over the years. He, he along with Amity Schles, who's blurbed your book, were two of the advisors on our president's survey. We have a clip from him talking about Warren Harding. Let's listen. No American president sets out to fail. Some are victims of unexpected events or changes in the political culture to which they cannot adapt. Some, like a Franklin Pierce or Warren Harding, are weak men, simply overwhelmed by the job itself. Their experience should, by the way, put us on guard, I think, against the short-term expedient of the dark horse candidate, usually a second-rater chosen by a convention unable to decide among more impressive front-runners. Harding, whose cabinet included both glittering talents and jail-bound embarrassments. Also, beware of presidents who profess ambitions before taking office, in Harding's case, not to be the best president, but to be the best-loved president. Ryan Walters, as our conversation continues, there's a couple of different things I want to get to later on. But right now, what I wanted to deal with was the last thing about wanting to be liked. Ultimately, was his affability, his personality, his wanting to be liked a detriment to him and who he selected to work around him? Probably so. That's probably a a fair assessment. And if I had to do any criticism of Harding, I would say that he was very trusting of people. Um, He just couldn't believe people would do the things that they would do. And that's probably not the best attribute uh, for president. I think you need to be skeptical of a lot of people. But he pointed good people to office. He also pointed some bad ones with the scandals. And I think it really broke his heart. Go back to Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She wrote that in her memoirs. Um, He found out about the Teapot Dome scandal uh, on that westward swing. And really it changed his, it just really changed his mood, people that were there. Um, talked about how his mood changed. And she always thought he he died of a broken heart, uh, that people had betrayed him. So, yeah, he was, a, again, he was a kind, warm, caring man. But, again, he he um, he trusted people. He wanted to be loved. Um, and that's not going to work when you're president. Okay, let's set the stage for the Harding presidency. You described 1919, the year before the election, as one of, I think the quote is, the most horrific years in U.S. history. Why was it? 1919 was, was horrific, and most people don't know a lot about it. Coming out of World War I at the end of 1918, we get into 1919, um, there's a series of terroristic bombings. You know, a lot of anarchist groups and Bolshevik groups were uh, setting off bombs around the country. Uh, one target was the Attorney General of the United States. They blew out part of his house. Um, these things were going on. There were labor strikes around the country and some, and some major strikes, particularly in Seattle and those areas. Thousands and thousands of workers uh, went out on strike. Um, The racial violence was horrific during the summer. Um, It's usually referred to as the Red Summer of 1919. Um, Dozens of African-Americans were lynched in different parts of the country. We're not necessarily talking about the South, but um, in other parts of the country as well. Some of the the worst horrific racial violence that year was in Chicago, of all places, where you had rioting for a number of days. So that kind of thing is going on um, all throughout the year. And I go into a lot of detail of that um, in the book. Um, and of course, that moves into 1920 and the economy collapses after that. So it was a very trying time. So people who try to say that Harding um, didn't come into office with a lot of problems to solve, I mean, I don't know where they get that because he had a lot to deal with. And he did a lot of, a lot of good things to, 
to straighten that up. He threw his hat into the ring December 16, 1919. Why did he make that decision? Well, he, he agonized over it for a while. He wrote a lot of letters. People were trying to push him to do it. And he threw his hat in the ring. I think he thought he had a, a pretty good shot at it. A lot of people have tried to say he was the pick from the beginning because he was a very pliable, easygoing uh, candidate that we can put in office and we can kind of mold him and push him in the direction that we want him to go. But I found evidence that that's not true at all. Uh, he even said at one time, hey, I, I think I'd make as good a president as anybody. Of course, when he got into the got into office, he found out it was a tough job, and he made a couple of statements that this is a tough job, and, and I shouldn't have been here. And people have taken that and tried to say uh, bad things about him, but it, it's a tough job. I mean, even President Trump said that this job is tougher than I thought it was. It, it, the, the job of president is not easy for anybody, but I think he thought he, he was as good as anybody running. And there were some pretty good candidates. General Leonard Wood was out there, and others. Um, but nobody could, but the convention couldn't agree on anybody. And they turned to Harding, supposedly in this smoke filled room, which I refute that as well. Well, before uh, he decided to seek the presidency, what had been his claim to fame in the United States Senate? And that's one of the myths I tackled that he was a backbencher in his six years in the Senate. Well, the first four years, the Democrats controlled the Senate when he was there. I mean, when you're, when you're in the minority, um, there's not a lot that you can do. Of course, Republicans regained the majority in 1918. In his last year, um, he was on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, chaired by Henry Cabot Lodge. And he was a very valued member of that. And he was instrumental in helping stop uh, the the Treaty of Versailles and and particularly the United States getting into the League of Nations. As a matter of fact, when the debate started in the Senate, the lead speech was given to Warren Harding. He was given the number one speech, the first speech, um, against the League of Nations. He went with Lodge and others down to the White House to try to talk to President Wilson about uh, making changes to the treaty and changes to uh, the League of Nations. So Harding was very instrumental in stopping the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson had had his stroke and was incapacitated, we now know, in the White House. Um, I'm wondering uh, how the public was viewing Woodrow Wilson going into the 1920 election. Not very well, as we found out. Uh, you know, Wilson had the stroke, and that was something they hid from the public. Um, he was incapacitated for eight or nine months, and his wife, uh, Edith, was actually running the country. A lot of people have said that she was our first uh, female president, because in a lot of ways, uh, she was. And it was kept secret, and, and with the media, uh, then it was a lot easier to do that. But um, he wanted the nomination for a third term, and he thought he might get it. Of course, he didn't go to their convention. It was in San Francisco, but he waited by the phone in the White House that he would get called. Uh, But they ultimately nominated James Cox and not Wilson. Of course, Wilson wanted the League of Nations put on the ballot, essentially, for the election. He wanted the election to be about the League of Nations um, because the Senate had voted it down twice. And he thought the people were with him. Well, the result in the 1920 election was Harding got over 60% of the popular vote. So certainly the people were not, and this was an era before polling. So there's really no way to know. You can just look at the results of the election. 60% of the electorate uh, chose Warren Harding over Cox. You say that, uh, the, uh, Blackstone in room 404, which is where the story is that the deal was made to uh, nominate Warren Harding, which was, took the ninth ballot by the delegates at the convention is a myth. So if it's a myth, what's the real story? Well, 
you have to remember, this is before the supremacy of the presidential primary. We have the primaries today. You have to run in all the primaries, and that's how you gain your delegates. And we don't have brokered conventions anymore, which I, I think is a which is a tragedy. I think those were, were fun times, but uh, you know, so much of it's now on television, so they don't want a bunch of floor fights um, in front of the people. Those in those days, you had a few primaries, but and you only gained a few delegates. Everything was done at the convention, and up to that point. Every nominee was chosen in some manner like that. I mean, party leaders got together um, and, and, and try to keep from having a brokered convention. Who, who's the best candidate? But one of the senators who was at the meeting uh, refutes a lot of that so-called hand-picked guy. He was there and he said, look, um, we talked about Harding and we thought he'd be a good candidate, but it didn't matter because the delegates themselves still had to nominate him. They had to put his name on the floor and it was already on the floor, but they had to, it was the delegates that had to do it. Um, it didn't matter what a bunch of senators wanted to do. And, and one evidence for that is when they wanted to choose the vice presidency or vice presidential candidate, they wanted to pick a more liberal guy who would kind of be more of a, a, a balanced ticket with Hardy. And the convention delegates wouldn't have it at all. The convention delegates rose up and started shouting the name Coolidge to the point that Coolidge uh, won the vice presidential nomination pretty easily. So the delegates themselves were running that convention. The delegates chose Harding. The delegates chose Coolidge. They were wanting to push the party in an America first conservative direction. They didn't want any more progressivism at all. Where was the party convention held that year? In Chicago. And was Warren Harding at the convention? Uh, he was he was at the convention um, again. This is this is before the age of television, um, and you don't have all the all the fanfare that you do today. Um, people, um, you know, watching the watching the, the the comings and goings. A lot of it was done by paper, uh, excuse me, by the newspapers and things like that. And you don't have the big televised convention speeches and things like that. Harding, uh, this is when radio was first first getting started. As a matter of fact, there was not even any of this on the radio. Uh, the radio first radio broadcast was in November of that year, and the very first radio broadcast uh, in the world in this country was um, announcing Harding and Coolidge had won the election. And Harding was the first president to install a radio in the White House. This is before the age of mass media. We do have a recording of Warren Harding at the Capitol in July accepting the nomination. Just a little bit of the speech. It's a bit hard to hear, but let's let's give it a try. I believe in party government as distinguished from personal government, individual, dictatorial, autocratic, or whatnot. It was the intent of the founding fathers to give this republic a dependable and enduring popular government, representative in form, and it was designed to make political parties the effective agencies through which hopes and aspirations and convictions and conscience may be translated into public performance. So he talks about the importance of party government, not personal government, not a dictatorial government. So uh, explain his view of the presidency and uh, his governing philosophy. When he uh, won the nomination, he was talking about the convention. He was there because they brought him in that same room and asked him, uh, you know, uh, is there anything in your background that might hurt your candidacy? And he, of course, he told him no. But he wanted to make sure that they got a good platform 
And then he went out and went out and said, look, we need to put in the platform exactly what we intended. And this is what he means by party government. We need to tell the people exactly what we're going to do and not cheat them. He actually uses those words. Let's not cheat the people and deceive them. Tell them what we're going to do and put it out there in the platform and then campaign on it. And we get in office, actually do it. So he didn't have a view of the presidency as this activist uh, like like a Woodrow Wilson and later an FDR where the government um, transforms the country and, and puts in all these new policies and programs. He actually said uh, the world needs to be reminded that not every problem can be cured by legislation. In other words, the government can't do and fix everything that people want fixed. So his philosophy was more in line with what the founding fathers wanted with the presidency not this activist that, that's going to go out and change things, but somebody that's going to administer the executive branch of the government. While Cox and FDR traveled widely for the campaign, uh, Warren Harding famously ran the front porch campaign. What was his strategy? Well, he modeled it on uh, William McKinley, the front, another Ohio president who ran the, the famous front porch campaign. Harding did a little bit of traveling, a little bit of speaking, but not much. Um, his home there in Marion, Ohio is still there, the f- famous front porch. And you can see a lot of pictures and, and a few videos of, of throngs of people coming. And he would give speeches from that uh, front porch, kind of going back to the bygone era um, where you, you couldn't seek the presidency or actually seem like you wanted it because people thought you were up to no good. Um, if you were uh, ambitious to hold the office. The office should seek the man. The man should not seek the office was the old way. And he kind of wanted to run a campaign like that. Of course, the other thing is I don't think they really needed to run a good campaign. The country was in a, a big, fat mess in 1920, particularly economically with the Forgotten Depression. So they just had to keep from making mistakes. I think they were pretty, were pretty confident they were going to win pretty easily. The 1920 election was the first time that women had the right to vote. How did that impact the results? I think it impacted them pretty well. I mean, Harding was the first president to get over 60 percent of the vote. And I think a lot of women um, voted for Harding. That's pretty obvious um, because they could see the shape the country was in. Again, 1919, uh, pretty awful events. Uh, And then, of course, you go into 1920 and the, the, the economy essentially collapses. I mean, Unemployment goes up to 12%. Industrial production fell 95%. Uh, that's pretty horrific. And I think a lot of women were concerned about the direction of the country. They were concerned about their children and grandchildren. And Harding's campaign slogan was return to normalcy. And that was a perfect slogan because that's exactly what people wanted to hear. Um, and that's exactly the direction they wanted the country to go in. So it was a perfect marketing uh, campaign on the on behalf of Harding. Two symbolic moves as he uh, took office. He canceled the inaugural balls, and he opened the White House to visitors. What was the public reaction to both? Uh, well, you got to remember, Wilson had closed it down. The country was almost in a depressed, drab, dreary-type mood, and that was one symbolic thing that he wanted to do. We're not going to go have a party because I've been inaugurated the president. That's not, that's not a good look when the country's in the shape it's in economically. Um, which I which I agree with. I don't I don't like to inaugurate balls uh, any more than he did. But opening the White House and letting people come in, and, and some people uh, asked the First Lady Florence Harding. They said, "We know all these people are going to come in, and is that what y'all want?" She said, "It's their house. Let them come in and see it. So you know, invite the public in. This is a different time 
they would never do that today um, with, the, with the threats against the president and the Secret Service and things like that. But it was a different era um, a century ago. But that, again, that's, that shows the kind of man Harding was. He was, a, again, a kind, humble, benevolent guy. He, he was not uh, going to go out and he was not aristocratic uh, or, or arrogant in any way. Presidential inaugurations were still in March at that point? He called for a special session of Congress to begin in April. What was its goal? Well, the economy, that was the number one goal for him, the economy. Uh, we, we, we had to straighten out the economy. Um, spending was through the roof because of World War I. Uh, taxes were through the roof. The top tax rate was over 70 percent. Uh, so we've got to cut spending and we've got to cut taxes. And another thing he asked for is an emergency tariff. Uh, the, the economies in Europe coming out of World War I were in terrible shape, and they began dumping cheap products onto the American market. So they wanted to put up an emergency tariff uh, to stop European dumping, particularly from the British uh, and others. So he had a lot of goals, but he knew he had to get control of the economy before he did anything else, because if the economy collapses uh, into a major, long, drawn-out depression, the the rest of the problems really don't matter. You got to get that addressed first. So that was the, that was the number one on his plate. From a foreign policy perspective, why would the president not have wanted to aid European economies in their recovery from the war uh, by allowing them to export goods? Mm-hmm. Well, he was again. Harding is America first. He, he he wants to prosper, as he said. I want to prosper the American people first. You got to remember that European governments owed the United States ten billion dollars, and that was one of the way they wanted to pay it back was to sell a bunch of stuff in our market, essentially, which is sell a bunch of stuff to us and use our money to pay the loans. Harding's position was, we're not going to do that and let let them destroy our industries. We need these jobs for Americans because again, the unemployment's gone from about four percent to about twelve. Um, and climbing. He said, we've got to stop this and and allowing them to dump into our market is not the way to do that. Um, They can pay their loans back uh, on their own, which most of those loans, by the way, were never paid back. Finland paid theirs back. I always tell my students, um, have a soft spot in your heart for Finland. Finland paid us back, but nobody else did. Everybody else defaulted on those loans. Tell me about the economic team. If you look on the ledger of good cabinet appointments and bad, people give a lot of credit to the the economic team that he put together. Who were they? First and foremost was the Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon. Um, a lot of a lot of conservatives in the Congress were really happy with that pick. Mellon was a, one of the richest, richest men in America, the famous Mellon family, knew a lot about economics. He was a great Secretary of the Treasury. Um, of course, he had Coolidge there, and, and Carding actually brought Coolidge into more the operation of the government. Up until Coolidge, vice presidents were generally forgotten. People hated the job, didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, but Harding brought Coolidge in. Uh, they had discussions before the inauguration about who to pick for the government. And Coolidge was in the cabinet meetings. He was one of the first vice presidents to be invited into that. He had a lot to say about the economy. Uh, they passed a budget bureau. Uh, the U.S. government didn't have a budget before Warren Harding. Most people don't know that. We didn't have a comprehensive budget like we do now, but he created the budget bureau, uh, bureau of the budget, uh, named Charles Dawes to that team, and Dawes was really instrumental in helping to get control of the spending and 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 cut a lot of the wasteful spending. They cut spending fifty percent um, from what it had been in nineteen twenty. 
So his economic team was very, very good. He had Herbert Hoover as uh, Secretary of, of Commerce, and he, he was instrumental um, in helping uh, in trade and things like that. One of the interesting historical footnotes that you mentioned in, in, in your book is that as a former senator, he was able he had Senate floor privileges. So he was mm-hmm. able to nominate his cabinet right on the Senate floor. What was the impact of that? It was actually an ingenious move. I've never heard of any other president doing it. As you mentioned, as a senator, even as a former senator, you always have floor privileges. You can go out on the floor anytime you want to. And he walked down to the floor and said, here's my cabinet. And I, we've got problems in the country. I need them uh, confirmed and in, in place so we can get started fixing these problems. And they um, approved every single one of them unanimously right there on the spot, including well, Albert Fall, the Secretary of the Interior, who, who caused so many problems with Teapot Dome. What was the party breakdown of the Senate at that point? What did he uh, what came in with the election? Uh, he had a, he had full control of the House and the Senate by wide uh, majorities. Um, so he, he could do a lot of what he wanted to do. And that's always important for a president, um, to have control of Congress and have people that are willing to work with you. And he gets good marks, I think, for working with Congress. And a lot of that's his personality. He was not, he was not like Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson's attitude was, I'm going to dictate to Congress and, you know, what I want and you're going to do it. That's what he tried to do with the League of Nations. He said at one point the Senate must take its medicine. Well, that's not the way you work with Congress, and that's not the way Harding worked with Congress. He had good relations because he had been in the Senate. So he was able to get a lot done. But again, having overwhelming majorities um, helps a lot. Why was future President Herbert Hoover a controversial cabinet pick? Hoover was a Republican, like Harding and Coolidge, but he was not um, a philosophical conservative. And a lot of people in the Senate didn't like Hoover at all. Because he was not that I didn't like him. I mean, he was a good guy. He'd done a lot in World War One, helping with uh, feed Belgium and things like that. He was a great administrator. And Harding wanted him in the cabinet and wanted him as either Interior Secretary of Commerce. He gave Hoover the choice, and Hoover chose Commerce. But the Senate started pushing back uh, when they found out that's who he wanted to name because they thought he was too much of a progressive, or we would say a liberal. Um, remember, Hoover was an engineer. Even Mellon said, look, he's too much of an engineer. He likes to try to engineer the economy, and that's not the way it works. And there was a lot of pushback. They were not going to confirm Hoover, it didn't look like. But the Senate, again, is full of conservatives. They really liked the, the Mellon pick. They were happy with Mellon. They were, they were really ecstatic about Mellon. And this is, this is an example that I used that Harding was not pliable. Harding was not there to do the bidding of, of the Senate or, or party officials. Because he got tired of this pushback on Hoover. And he wrote out a little small note that he sent to the Senate leaders, Henry Cabot Lodge and others. And it was very, uh, very short <laughs> and to the point note. It said, Mellon and Hoover are no Mellon. In other words, if you don't give me Hoover, I'm not going to give you Mellon. That's not what somebody who's, who's applicable and being led around, um, that's not the actions that they take. I mean, his position was, I'm going to get him who I want in my cabinet. And he was able to do it. So he was not being led around by any party leaders. Why did he want Hoover so much? He had a lot of faith in Hoover. Hoover was a smart man. I mean, Hoover was one of the smartest presidents we've ever had. Uh, of course, his presidency was a disaster, as we found out. But Hoover had been a, a mining engineer, a brilliant mining engineer, 
uh, made a lot of money uh, around the world mining gold and all kind of things and, and had retired by the you know time he was 40 years old with, with, with plenty of money um, so he, he and he had done a lot to help um, the relief efforts in World War one Wilson had tapped him he was head of the food administration they did a lot to to, to save the food supply to make sure we had enough food for not only the population during here in, 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 during World War One, but we could feed our troops and 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 help feed the population in uh, Europe. So he was well thought of, but a lot of cons- very conservative Republicans again just didn't want him in the cabinet because they thought he was too liberal. Of the four-part economic plan that the team put together, cut spending, tariffs, reduce government regulation, and slash taxes, uh, you write that they signed tax cut legislation into law by Thanksgiving of the first year. What did it do to the rates? Well, the rates had gone, again, had gone through the roof. Remember, the income tax didn't become a law until 1913. The 16th Amendment was ratified. Later that fall, uh, Wilson put in the first income tax and it wasn't very high at all. I mean, if you had to make almost a hundred thousand dollars a year in today's money to pay it, um, and if you were a Rockefeller or somebody like that, you might pay as much as seven percent a year. In. By the time we get to World War One, nineteen eighteen, that top rate is over seventy percent. It's pretty catastrophic. Throughout nineteen nineteen, there was no effort. Nineteen twenty, there was no effort by the Wilson administration to cut it at all. But when Mellon came in and said, "We've got to cut taxes and free this money up," so that was one of the first things they tackled. And, of course, Mellon wanted to cut it way down, immediately down to about 20 or 25 percent. But they were unable to do it. Uh, actually, what you do see the reduction down to 25 percent, but that takes place over the entirety of the 1920s. They cut it, and then they, every, about every two years they cut taxes. That way we don't ever get a, uh, a, a deficit. We never had a deficit in the 1920s. They cut taxes and then cut spending and let the economy catch up, and then they cut them again and cut them again. Um, that way, not in one fell swoop. So that way, you didn't have a you didn't have a deficit at all. You had a surplus every year, and they paid down a third of the national debt because of it. Well, if uh, you posit that his policies, which which Coolidge continued, created the Roaring Twenties, uh, what responsibility did they bear for the depression and the stock market crash? That's something that a lot of historians say, that Harding and Coolidge and Hoover, they kind of throw them all together. But as I've said, Harding and Coolidge were nothing like Hoover. Hoover was actually closer to FDR in his philosophy of government. Um, Again, the the, the laissez-faire policies of Harding and Coolidge led led to the roaring 20s. And, of course, what they say is, well, if you give them credit for that, you have to give them credit for the crash. No, I don't. Uh, Hoover came in in 1929, and when the the stock market crashed, he's the one that started reversing Harding and Coolidge's policies, not FDR. Hoover raised taxes to 63%. Hoover insisted on the smooth-hauling tariff. Hoover began to spend money and to try to fight the Depression. This idea that Hoover let, let, let said that we needed to blow the just let the let the economy blow itself out. That's that's not true at all. Uh, he was a progressive. As a matter of fact, uh, some of FDR's aides said we got some of our best ideas from Hoover. Um, so Hoover was more of a New Dealer than Harding and Coolidge. He's the one that reversed it. And of course, you got to give a lot of credit to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve pulled a third of the money out of circulation in four years. And of course, uh, the tax increases. 
third of the money is out of circulation. The government's taking in uh, a lot of the, what's remaining um, in circulation, in taxes and spending. FDR tripled taxes and doubled spending. Um, I tell people today, what would happen if we did that today? Just imagine if the Federal Reserve pulled a third of the money out of circulation and then we doubled spending and tripled taxes. What do you think is going to happen to the economy? I can tell you what's going to happen to it. It's going to plunge into a depression. And it lasted throughout the 1930s. Um, unemployment never went below 14%. On the eve of World War II, it was at 19%. So the New Deal clearly failed. And I don't know why they want to give the credit to that for Harding, who died six years before the, the stock market crashed. Let's talk about that America first foreign policy. He put Charles Evans Hughes in the State Department as secretary. What did he bring to the table? He was an excellent choice for Secretary of State. He was one of the best Secretary of State we've had. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes had been a Supreme Court uh, Justice. He had been uh, Governor of New York. He was the 1916 uh, Republican uh, presidential nominee, very close to uh, defeating Woodrow Wilson that year. Um, so he was a superb choice, served for four years under Harding and then uh, Coolidge, and this is something that Harding doesn't get credit for, and that's foreign policy. We, everybody looks at the scandals and all of these things. His foreign policy was actually very good. Uh, coming out of World War One. he formally ended World War One. We still had troops in the Rhineland region in Germany. He withdrew those troops. Um, we had, again, the debt problems that we had, uh, the money that European governments owed. He called a, a World War Debt Commission to try to solve some of those issues. Um, we had terrible relations with Latin America, Mexico, the Caribbean. Wilson had poisoned a lot of that. Uh, we occupied a lot of places in the Caribbean, including Cuba and other areas. He withdrew troops from the Caribbean. Uh, he repaired our relations with Mexico, wrote some really good letters to the, the president of Mexico. And the president of Mexico was happy because Wilson had poisoned those relations as well. So he straightened a lot of that out. And a lot of those uh, leaders down there were happy to see Harding. They said, hey, this is a new era in Latin American American relations. And, and the big thing he did was call the Washington Disarmament Conference. It's also called the Washington Naval uh, Conference. First disarmament conference we'd ever been a part of. And because those days, the, the big nasty weapons were was not air power, nuclear weapons. It was naval forces. And at least part of the reason for World War One was the naval race between Germany and Britain. And Harding called this conference in Washington, D.C. in 1922 uh, and 23. And they reduced uh, those weapons. We reduced our fleets. Britain reduced its fleet. Everybody had to reduce their fleet. There were also some treaties that were struck between nations that helped uh, ease tensions in the Pacific. They banned the use of poison gas on the battlefield. Harding was actually nominated twice for the Nobel Peace Prize uh, based on the Washington Disarmament Conference. So he has a lot of accomplishment in foreign policy that most people don't ever stop to look at. One important one to note, uh, it was the burgeoning of the Soviet Union. And uh, you talk about the massive famine that was happening in that region of the world. Would a different foreign policy have possibly had this, uh, the outcome of nipping the Soviet Union in the bud? Um, probably not. We actually had, most people don't realize, we actually had troops involved in that. Uh, the Bolsheviks were prevalent. And I don't, I don't know that there's any way you can know if we... Um, would have had a hand in that or not. A lot of people have surmised that if we had stayed out of World War I altogether, it would have changed the entire history of the world. We tipped the balance 
in favor of the allied powers. If we stay out of it, it probably changes everything, possibly including Russia, because the, because the entire reason that Vladimir Lenin was even in Russia was because the Germ- Germans sent him back to stir up trouble in Russia because Germany was fighting a war on two fronts. If we'd stayed out of it, um, I don't think we would have had a Soviet Union. We, would, we certainly wouldn't have had a Nazi Germany in World War II, possibly. Um, so there's a lot to be said for that. It's a very interesting thesis. But you're right. We did. There was a bad famine, and, and the U.S. government, we did send a lot of food to the Soviet Union to help with that. So, again, Harding's not a, you know, he's not a monster. He's going to try to help people when he can. That's not necessarily a, an aspect of America first foreign policy, but he just thought it was the right thing for us to do. Okay, those scandals that every high school student studies in, in their uh, civics and history books, the Veterans Bureau, the Justice Department, and Teapot Dome. So let's start with the Veterans Bureau. You agree that, uh, describe it as greed run amok. What happened in the Veterans Bureau? Well, he appointed Charles Forbes. He had met Forbes a few years before in Hawaii, and, and they got along great. And he, he thought it would be good at the Veterans Bureau. This was something new. Uh, that we had started again. Had a lot of wounded people, a lot of wounded veterans coming back from World War One, and so we had to take care of them. And a lot of the spending um, in the in the federal budget. Again, the federal budget before World War One was only about seven hundred and fifteen million dollars. Um, by the time Harding got in office, it was six billion, and he cut it down to three. And a lot of people said, "Well, you know, you can see it's still three billion dollars throughout the nineteen twenties." A lot of that was taking care of veterans. And that's one of the things about war. Wars continue to cost long after the conflict is over. And so they were building a series of uh, veterans hospitals and supplying them with medical supplies. And Charles Forbes was skimming off the top. They were overcharging the government for supplies and construction and really stealing from wounded veterans, as despicable as that is, uh, to the tune of about $2 million. And, and in one story we have that Harding confronted Forbes in the White House, according to one New York Times reporter who was in the White House, actually walked in and uh, Harding was violently confronting Forbes, had him by the throat, called him a double crosser. Uh, the reporter said he was shaking him like a dog would a rat. Did he uh, fire so him? He, yeah, if he was fired. He was prosecuted. Forbes went to prison uh, for that. So what what uh, responsibility does Harding bear in the Veterans Bureau scandal? And, and of course, the, 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 the attorney for the Veterans Bureau, a guy named Charles Kramer, actually committed suicide over the, over the scandal. It was the first of two suicides that Harding had in his administration. Of course, he bears responsibility. A president's always responsible for who he selects for office. Um and, and, and he's, so he's responsible for that. You have to you have to say that. I mean, there's there's no question about that. He appointed a, an attorney general, Doherty, who was indicted, tried twice, and took the fifth. Pretty so smart man. What's the story? Well, what's the story well, there? And they and they say that Harding's administration was was filled with what they call the the Ohio gang. That all these people from Ohio that he appointed came in to loot the treasury. Very few people uh, that were involved in the scandals were actually from Ohio. Most of the people he appointed from Ohio were, were, were clean. Uh, the Teapot Dome scandal didn't have anything to do with anybody from Ohio, neither did the Veterans Bureau. Now, the Justice Department did. Harry Dory was the, the attorney general. Um, he's been called one of Harding's handlers, but that's not exactly true. Um, 
And, of course, uh, his right-hand man was a guy named Jesse Smith. Jesse Smith was also from Ohio. And they were kind of running a, a, a scam in the Justice Department where they were selling government goodies. You could buy a pardon. You could buy a liquor license, even though it's prohibition. You could, you could do things like that. Um, so it was just good old-fashioned corruption. And Jesse Smith was the main one involved in that. And these two guys lived together, Doherty and Smith, in a house on 8th Street in Washington. But they also rented another house that was known as the Little Green House on K Street. That's where all the wheeling and dealing took place. And a lot of people say that Harding used to go to a lot. No, they did not. Uh, according to Secret Service, um, Harding never went to the little green house on K Street. He went to the 8th Street house a few times, but not the house where all the shenanigans were taking place. And Harding confronted Jesse Smith. Um, he said, you know, when he found out all that was going on, he said, you're going to be arrested in the morning. You need to get your affairs in order, and you're going to be charged for this. Smith went home, burned his papers, and killed himself. Um, so that's how uh, the Justice Department, and as you said, Doherty was never uh, convicted of anything. During, uh, before he died, did Harding confront Doherty on any of this? Uh, not to my knowledge. Um, when he when he died, he was on his westward tour, and that's when he found out about Teapot Dome. Um, so Teapot, Teapot Dome needs a bit more of explanation. It's probably jogging some memory cells for people, but what were the details? It, it, it's probably the coolest name scandal we have, that in Watergate. I mean, everybody knows Teapot Dome. Um, but the Navy had oil reserves set aside um, in Elk Hills, California, in Teapot Dome, Wyoming. That's where the name comes from. And these are oil reserves for use exclusively by the Navy. If we get into a war or, or some kind of other emergency, again, naval ships ran on petroleum. They're not nuclear powered like a lot of them are today. So they needed that in reserve. So nobody could drill there or produce anything. Um, they were strictly under the control of the Navy. Harding's interior secretary was a man named Albert Fall. Albert Fall had been in the Senate for two terms. They knew each other for the Senate. He appointed him secretary of the interior. And when he became secretary of the interior, he convinced the Navy secretary, a guy named Edwin Denby, to transfer the naval oil reserves to the interior department. The interior department, which controls the national forests and and national parks and things like that. And his excuse was, well, it, the oil reserves really should be under the Interior Department. Of course, when he got control of them, Albert Fall, he leased them to two private oil companies, two oil men. Harry Sinclair got Teapot Dome. Edward Doheny got um, Elk Hills, California um, to use. And that's really what the scandal. Of course, Fall got um, a lot of money in bribes. So it's just good old-fashioned bribery. Um, really, one scholar said, uh, comparing it to other scandals, Teapot Dome was rather rinky-dink uh, compared to Watergate and some of the other scandals we've seen in our in our history. Um, that was that was the extent of it. Harding found out about it when he started his westward tour. He actually in Kansas, Albert Fall's wife uh, met the train and went in to privately see Harding, and and we don't know exactly what was said, but obviously that's what she came to telling. And uh, when he came out of that meeting, um, his mood had soured considerably. Herbert Hoover was also on that trip. Hoover writes a lot about it in his memoirs. And um, Harding met with Hoover and said, you know, we've got, a, we've got another scandal. And what should I do? Should I, should I publicize this 
or, or what should I do about it? And Hoover said, yeah, put it out there. Let's publicize it, publicize it, at least get credit for doing that. And I think the reason he asked Hoover that question was because he's already had two suicides, particularly with Jesse Smith. I think he was probably afraid if I confront some, who else is going to shoot themselves? How do I handle this? So that was probably going to be the plan. And it's really unfair to criticize Harding a lot for Teapot Dome, aside from appointing Albert Fall, because he died in 1923 before he could do anything about it. So we don't know exactly what he would have done about it. Uh, obviously, he was going to put it out there and probably have Fall prosecuted. Fall eventually was prosecuted. He was the first U.S. cabinet officer to go to prison. So he was punished for it. We didn't talk about Harding's approach to prohibition. Chief law enforcement officer of the United States, uh, how did he handle his approach to liquor in the White House and as president? Well, he, Harding liked to drink alcohol. He actually stopped doing that as president. Really, the whole country was against prohibition. A lot of people knew that prohibition was going to come to an end and be a failure. Uh, Harding wasn't enforcing prohibition uh, much at all. As a matter of fact, you could still... Um, and that's one of the re- that's one of the ways uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, President Kennedy's father, made a lot of money was was that no liquor operator in the country stopped doing what they were doing. A lot of them continued to make liquor in, of various types and store it because they knew prohibition uh, was still going on. Um, as far as Harding, now Harding was uh, Harding was still uh, having a drink here and there, but again, he stopped drinking as president. Again, there was no shenanigans with women. Um, so his per- so a lot of that kind of stuff had stopped um, during his presidency. So if I have the, the scorecard right, uh, two of his cabinet secretaries, Charles Forbes and uh, Albert Fall, went to prison. Uh, two people in, in his administration committed suicide, and his attorney general was indicted and took the fifth, tried twice. Um, you said earlier that the buck stops with any president of the United States. So why should this not trump all of the good that you suggested that he'd accomplished? Well, I think you have to look at it in terms of how presidents handle these scandals. A lot of presidents covered them up, uh, didn't do anything about it. Grant had far more scandals in his administration than Harding did. And Grant didn't do anything about it. Um, And when people got caught and they resigned, in most cases, Grant would make a remark like, well, I accept his resignation with great regret um, rather than doing anything about it. Harding was actually trying to do something about it. If you look at Albert Fall, Albert Fall, again, the Secretary of the Interior, he was confirmed in his job by the U.S. Senate by a unanimous vote. So if Harding um, failed to recognize any character flaws in Albert Fall, so did the entire United States Senate. So you really have to blame them as well. Nobody raised any objection to Albert Fall being the Secretary of the Interior. So, yeah, you can blame Harding, but you also have to blame um, the Senate as well. But look, Harding is responsible for who he uh, chooses in his cabinet and in his government. And and, and that and, and again, that's not going to. Then that's the reason he's not going to be on Mount Rushmore. But I think if you look at what he did to turn the country around economically. Uh, in, in terms of domestic politics. We had him talk about his civil rights record, talking about equal rights for black Americans, calling for an anti-lynching law, uh, going to Birmingham, Alabama, and speaking to a segregated audience down there uh, and saying we need blacks need to have equal rights. African Americans need to be brought into the a full equality. Now, that's a very courageous thing to do. He pardoned political prisoners, commuted the sentence of 
Eugene Debs did what he could to heal the country from uh, the wounds of World War One. So I think that Trump, uh, outweighs and trumps what happened with the scandals. Again, because at least people went to jail and at least people were prosecuted for it. As, as we close out, we have about three minutes left. Uh, in all this research and reading of his letters that you did, what was either the most surprising thing or the most interesting thing that you found out about Warren Harding that you didn't know before? I really, one of the, one of the interesting things I think is, is, is digging into his personality, the, the kind of guy he was. I really enjoyed that part of the book. Um, again, Charles Thompson, the New York Times, going to Marion and, and, and talking to people and finding out what a kind and benevolent man he was. This is a man that loved children, even though he didn't, he didn't have any with his wife, um, who loved animals. Um, and he had, a, he had a dog one time that died, and he wrote an obituary for the dog in his, in his Marion Star newspaper. He called out people that were abusive to animals, so people that like animals and animal rights. Um, would love Warren Harding. So there's a lot of those stories that I enjoy. That was probably the most enjoyable, that aspect of it. In the conclusion of your book, The Jazz Age President, you write, quote, the likelihood of full rehabilitation of Harding's reputation is remote. Why? Well, he's come up, as you mentioned, in your latest uh, C-SPAN poll, he's up to the number 37. I don't think he'll ever crawl up to the, to the, to the good category. I'm hoping to bump him up a few notches. I think some of this stuff's still going to stick to him like glue. And of course, history departments uh, throughout the country uh, are more than 90% of the liberal progressive persuasion. So I don't think you're ever going to see that change. Again, people like me and Amity Schlaes and others, uh, we're, we're, we're in the extreme minority. I'm just hoping to do my part to show that Harding was a much better president than we give him credit for. Um, there's some good things that he did and um, some things that people ought to take a second look at. He had a lot of courageous stands, and really it's a record that should be uh, admired. What kind of reception has your argument gotten so far? Well, the book's just come out. Uh, so far, good. Um, I had a lot of people that have read it, and uh, my editor, at Regnery, uh, wrote me a little note and said, well, you've convinced me. I didn't know he was a very good president. So I've had a lot of reception that's been good. Uh, nothing negative, but I can assure you that's probably coming pretty soon. Ryan Walters, the book is called The Jazz Age President Defending Warren Harding. Thanks so much for bringing your argument to C-SPAN. Appreciate the time with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 